everyone and welcome to this Archives of Disease and Childhood Fetal and Neonatal Edition podcast. Today we have the second of our Phantoms discussions. Every copy of the print journal um, has a summary of the number of papers selected by our section editor, uh, Professor Ben Stenson, who's a neonatologist in Simpson Reproductive Centre in Edinburgh. And this podcast involves a discussion between myself and him on the papers he has selected uh, for this month's Phantoms. This is the journal that will be coming out in July and uh, we do hope you enjoy the podcast. Ben, it would be fair to say that there's a lot of quite diverse content in the journal um, this month, thinking about everything from morality to bang up to date on on COVID. Um, You've selected eight articles and the first one is discussing moral distress. Um, I think neonates is coming to this topic probably a bit later than other intensive care specialties, but do you want to share what your thoughts on that topic and the the content that was present in this edition of the journal? Thanks, Jonathan. Yes, I chose the article about moral distress as the editor's choice because it continues with the theme from our last issue when we were looking at the changing landscape in neonatology in Europe since the neonatal community embraced the increasing survival prospects of infants born at the margins of viability. So a lot of people are finding themselves being asked to care for babies who previously they had normalized to a viewpoint that care for those babies was futile or not in their best interests. And for them to now start caring for those babies is quite a frame shift. And I think a lot of people are experiencing moral anguish. And uh, this article's just a nice read to help people reframe the way they think about this because um, it points out that moral anguish or moral distress is a natural feeling and that the simple viewpoint that the way to relieve it is to make a different care plan for the baby won't work in a system where there's such a wide diversity of of views about what might be in the baby's interests. And it requires us to accept moral distress as a reality of our job and to strategize on ways of relieving it that are wide ranging and different from simply making the care plan the person experiencing the moral distress thinks is most appropriate. So I don't think it offers any right answers or any wrong answers. There's no absolute answer for all cases or individual cases, but it just encourages people to be more thoughtful. And I I think it's right on topic with where we are. Uh, Absolutely. And I I expect it's something that we'll probably have to address more in neonatology uh, as time goes on. I mean, as I was, we were discussing before we started recording, um, we recently recorded a a podcast based on the new BAPM framework. And part of that discussion, that framework very much is based on the views of what parents as stakeholders. And um, I think part of the argument of that article was that we should have a commitment to shared decision-making and legitimize the role that parents have within the care of their infant, even though it may conflict with the traditional views of that of the clinical team. Yes, I agree. And really, that's what this article is all about. And I think it might be helpful to people who are stuck in that frame shift. 
absolutely and i think it's something that um it's something that we'll i will probably be seeing lots lots more of um and it's not a, a, a too different a, a topic and when we then think about um the outcome of 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 those babies and um the variations that outcome that exist throughout um uh, the large the european network um uh, that uh, Elizabeth Draper and her colleagues reported on development outcomes from. Um, what was specific about this article that, um, I mean, we've read a lot about outcomes and neurodevelopment outcomes in babies. What drew your attention to this one and um, its editorial? The bit that I found particularly fascinating was the editorial was drawing comparisons between, I suppose, the two largest semi-autonomous or autonomous states within the world so you've got united states of america so 50 autonomous states and then the european the the, the european union um and there was quite an, an interesting comparison between those very disparate healthcare approaches yeah well i mean the healthcare approaches are different but they're they're very different uh in between the different countries in europe as well and uh, particularly again at the margins of viability, but also particularly in the extent to which healthcare is centralized for the highest risk patients. So um, the simple fact is that wherever you look, you find this variation and there are some things we can do to uh, reduce it. That was why I also chose the article by Lawrence Impey and colleagues to go alongside this because a big issue in the UK in the last few years has been trying to make sure that the most immature babies, wherever possible, get delivered in a regional neonatal intensive care unit. And historically, that was not the case, but a lot of work has been done to improve that, and it is a changing landscape. So that in Lawrence's article, they showed that with their quality improvement approach, they were able to increase the number of um, extremely preterm babies in their region who got delivered in the regional center by about half from 50% to 75%. And that interests me as a, as a neonatologist working in Scotland because we're at the beginning of that journey in Scotland and we've got a long way to go. And it's really important to show what can be achieved when people work together and um, share the same goals. Absolutely. So moving on from um, our variations in, in outcome to, I suppose, not really moving on, but another type of, of outcome that is very contemporary, and that's the, the information about perinatal uh, COVID-19. Um, the paper by one of our previous podcast contributors, Chris Gale and his colleagues, is um, a discussion on uh, the, the measuring of incidence of neonatal complications of, of covid um, and I suppose, Ben, um, it would be fair to say that the rapidity at which such a collaboration has been set up um, is probably a, a, a product of the era, the very acute era that we're living in. Would that be a fair comment? Yes, I, uh, I think this paper is, is, obviously it's not yet presenting any data. It's describing a, a, a system that has been set up to give us whole UK um, surveillance data on the morbidities of COVID-19 from birth right through to adulthood. And um, that's going to be hugely valuable information. I think that the, the COVID pandemic has caused us to redefine the way we do so many things. And there are going to be so many things that 
we're able to improve as a result of the learning from that. And to me, research is one important area in that regard. Um, historically, the process of setting up big studies, um, studies such as this surveillance study, but also big randomized controlled trials, has been very slow because of all of the processes that one has to go through in, in order to be allowed to commence them, get the funding and so on. And with COVID, um, the sense of urgency to get answers to a new problem has enabled a lot of that to be hugely streamlined so that a study like this has been able to go from the idea to the reality in a small number of weeks and is going to deliver really important life saving information really quickly. And we've seen the same thing in the uh, in the wider trials. The, the big trial in the UK of multiple different drugs randomizing adult patients in intensive care to um, different drug treatments, I think went from first idea to first patient randomized within a space of a few weeks and within a few months has more than 10,000 patients randomized and is already influencing care worldwide. And it really just shows what can be done when people get the message that research can save lives or change lives. And, um, but that's actually true of all research. And what yeah. I'm really hoping is that we can use this learning to make research much more accessible, to make it much more normal for people to expect to be in studies so that we can start getting the answers we need to deliver all of the care we give much more efficiently uh, for the benefit of patients, obviously. Absolutely. And I think, as you said, or perhaps we've said before, all research and all care is a matter of life and death in, in some respect. And I, I think that the, the most impressive thing, certainly about this paper in, in the journal and um, with what you mentioned in terms of the recovery trial, I believe it's called, um, is that, um, you know, collaboration has really been, seems to have been the key in order to do that. Um, uh, because in this paper, you've got the BPSU, the British Paediatric Surveillance Unit, um, collaborating with the Paediatric Intensive Care Audit Network, PICANET, and the National uh, Neonatal Research Database in providing quite comprehensive uh, data of all babies and children from birth until until adulthood. And that's quite, that's quite an impressive um, quite an impressive uh, feat uh, in such a short period of time and I suppose as a, as a neonatologist thinking about the recovery trial and that was recently published I think I would be locking the cupboard to the, the, the dexamethasone cupboard in the NICU just in case it gets raided by um, another department. Yeah but isn't that exciting? The, I mean um, a year ago setting up such a complex study it would have been more than a year in gestation and um, We've really, really just got to get this message. Absolutely. Um, uh, and so moving on to um, perhaps a, a more thorny issue, less, less straightforward issue, is the, is the topic of, of probiotics and, and necrotizing enterocolitis. Um, my understanding of this topic is that it has gone in circles somewhat um, around the world. And we've got a, a paper in the the journal discussing a 10-year view of, of multi-strain probiotics in, in high-risk infants. Um, you, you sort of comment in the phantoms about replication of, of this particular study, and I think that's been the problem with probiotic studies. Um, do you think this is a paper that will be useful in meta-analysis, or does it stand alone by itself as something that people will be interested in? Well, um, 
it's really interesting how variable the practice is in relation to probiotics. We've got the Cochrane review of randomized controlled trials that show that as a class of treatment, they can make a really big difference. But that meta-analysis combines a vast number of different studies of different agents. When you try and home in on which agent will I use, it's much harder to find one that's been appropriately evaluated and demonstrated individually to be beneficial. And in fact, the two really large trials in the UK and Australia, the outcomes were more disappointing than would have been predicted by the um, by the Cochrane. So it leaves, leaves people uncertain. But um, nevertheless, individuals who are in, introducing particularly multi-strain probiotics are acquiring observational data that um, their NEC rates have come down. And it's obviously always difficult with observational data because um, there are so many residual confounders that might be alternative explanations for the results. So we must be very cautious in accepting observational data as the basis for our treatments because a great many of the mistakes of neonatology in the past have been based on that approach. So um, whilst data such as this are really interesting, it is really important that they are widely replicatable before we can um, regard them as solid. Absolutely. Um, and then just on to the, the, the last paper that you've chosen in Phantoms, and I suppose it sort of ties in with a, a sort of a COVID theme, um, or certainly that's how you badged it in, in the Phantoms, um, face fit testing for babies um, and talking about mask sizing and, uh, and making sure your mask fits correctly. Do you think we're moving into individualised mask fits prior to resuscitation? No, I was having a bit of fun with the title because I'm sure like you in your neonatal unit, we've been plagued by the need to fit every single one of our staff to an FFP3 mask to give them effective personal protective equipment and everyone's face is different and it's really hard to achieve that for some members of staff. Mm. And when I was preparing this issue, I was amused to see this um, study about effectively measuring the faces of babies and seeing which masks would fit and it just seemed to be um, an interesting and nice theme uh, that reflects what we're all going to at the moment but it is a valuable study it shows that um, you can never assume that any mask will fit the baby but you can benefit from knowing which one is most likely to fit as your first choice of course, Ben, the, in that face-fitting section, you, you mentioned another paper about the use of exhaled CO2 detectors um, to influence respiratory support uh, when using a T-piece resuscitator. Um, some units don't routinely do that, but it, it, it sounds like a good idea, and certainly the evidence from that paper was quite compelling. Well, uh, this paper really interested me because um, exhaled CO2 detectors are, can be very valuable as uh, mechanisms of uh, providing secondary confirmation of um, both effective ventilation, correct endotracheal tube placement. And so we're encouraged to use them. But um, if you've been to a, a lot of stabilizations, you will have seen cases where people have removed tubes that were probably well placed because they weren't getting confirmation of exhaled CO2 when in fact that wasn't telling them that their tube wasn't correctly placed. It was simply telling them that they weren't yet effectively ventilating the lungs. 
And obviously one reason for that, that might be that you're not uh, providing enough pressure or flow. And um, what this study highlights is the possibility that it might also be because you don't recognize the possibility for a leak of what can be quite significant amounts of your gas flow from the junction between the respiratory support device and the exhaled CO2 detector. And it's just further um, information that will be useful in encouraging people to just remember that no CO2 doesn't mean tube in the wrong place. It means no ventilation. Absolutely. And that will be um, no doubt music to our uh obviously the millions of anaesthetic colleagues who listen to the, the podcast who have been uh, uh, harping on to neonatologists for some time about the use of uh, exhaled CO2 and uh, what it means and uh, how it might be beneficial when we are both resuscitating and, and intubating. And um, yeah, I think it's, I think it's interesting and I think it's a, perhaps another step in the right direction for, for delivery room practice. Yeah. Um, Thank you, Ben, for conversation. As always, um, uh, people can interact with the, the podcast and interact with the journal. The, the papers are all available both in print and online. Um, the Twitter handle for the, the ADCFN is at ADC underscore FN. My own Twitter handle is at Jonathan underscore Davis 3. And I believe, Ben, your Twitter handle is at Stenson Ben. Um, it would be great if people could interact and have some conversations um, and perhaps tell us if they prefer this format to the, our, our previous podcasts or is it good to have a, a variety but it's been a fascinating conversation and uh, we look forward to people's comments thanks very much